Obama's already there. That's fine. Hey, Hi, man. How are you? You get a shiver in the dark. It's a great it's another edition of Swing Thoughts. You can hear some voices in the background because we are literally just now connecting with our guest today. But like a lot of things, golf included, you know, it doesn't always start the way, you know, it can have a, it can have a rocky start. <laughs> That's the whole point of the game. Uh, my name's Humble Howard along with uh, Tim O'Connor. It is another edition of Swing Thoughts. And our guest today is Vin Harris. We'll tell you about him in a second. Uh, this program, Timmy, is always brought to you by our good friends at TaylorMade Golf. I know you're excited about heading into the uh, the golf lab next week to tune up your your 2020 edition of TaylorMade product. Absolutely. And I'm really excited because this time I'm going to go in with uh, some degree of familiarity with my golf swing. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> That's important. <laughs> yeah. No, I've been working with uh, Mike Martzi, one of our friends, Mike Martz. Um, That's right. So, yeah, I feel like I'm going to go in. It's, it's, I'm going to not be like a half hour into my fitting going, hmm, where's my swing again? <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I went there last week. I got to say, if you've been following uh, – golf this season 2020 you've been seeing uh, all these stars rory mcelroy tiger rom dj and several others with the new uh sim drivers i got fit for a sim driver last week it, it was transformative and uh I, but i went you know it's funny you say that I, I i was in there for two hours and 15 minutes and i was I, I i got worse as the session wore on and i was working with this young guy ryan i said man i don't know what's happened to my speed he said you've hit a hundred shots yeah there you go <laughs> i hit a i mean and by the way not easy swings they're all like see how far you can hit i'm like i was fatigued my arms hurt did he say anything about you now being in your seventh decade? You know what he said? It's funny because I had my first couple of driver swings. Interesting you say that because I just turned 60. He said, uh, let's go back to see your numbers from 2018. And and I'm not lying. Uh, my uh, miles per hour. Now, this is part mostly technology. But I was up a couple miles an hour on my driver swing. That's that's due to the uh, the fantastic work that they've done. It has nothing to do with that that bod you keep in, in <laughs> yeah. shape or anything. No, I, I, you know what? It was it was it's it's really the only sport I was telling this to. The, the new irons are ridiculous. Um, we all know that the seven uh, nineties that we use are. I don't know. I mean, all manufacturers tweak the lofts, but these yeah. ones, like I, I, I was hitting my six iron in nineteen ninety seven about one hundred and seventy yards. I I know that because I'm, I'm you know obsessed. And I'm a 60-year-old man, and my numbers with my 7-iron now are what my 6-iron used to be. And I know that's universal in terms of the way they bump the lofts on irons, but still, it was pretty cool. Yeah, well, when I put the P790s in the bag two years ago, I automatically had, like, at least five, six to seven yards more. Easily. And I just love the way I, I put them down. They look like a player's club. They just look and feel so good. So I'm really jazzed about going in next Tuesday and um, getting the new iterations in my in my mitts. Uh, and plus, for you Swing Thoughts uh, nerds who know that we do this starting in April, and again, this is all uh, virus um, <laughs> contingent. Contingent, <laughs> but we will start this summer if we can 
Uh, the the plan is to give away some fittings <clears throat> to, to to have you guys go through what um, I've just gone through, what Tim's going to go through. It's a three hour full bag fitting, and if you've never done it, even if you don't get tailor made clubs, which we say shame on you, but it's worth <laughs> it's worth doing just to get a real sense of the instruments in your hands. Okay, let's uh, get into what we are here for, what we've been doing for over four years, which is exploring the mental side of this very rich and deep thinking game that we both love, and <clears throat> and hopefully the people listening are into it. Um, our guest today is, well, we'll tell you in a second the story about how Tim uh, came to know this person, but I can tell you that he's an altruistic entrepreneur a teaching fellow at the University of Aberdeen and was a founding member of the Mindfulness Association. That's some of the stuff he's done. His uh, book is called Mindful Heroes, and uh, we're excited and grateful to have him in our uh, studios, at least remotely. Uh, hello, Vin Harris. How are you? Hello. Yeah. Hello, Howard and uh, Tim. Nice nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you, too. Um yeah, I, it was really interesting how we kind of got introduced. I was uh, just saying to Howard about 10 minutes ago, um, I was chopping onions, yeah, getting ready for dinner, and I'm listening to, to Carl's uh, podcast, and he's talking to this interesting dude, uh, Vin Harris. And then this guy starts talking about Mo Norman. And, uh, oh, oh, this is pretty cool. I know Mo Norman. <laughs> and then Carl goes on to talk. So anyway, it's just – and it was interesting – how, uh, you know, I've been on Carl's show, you know, I wrote Mo's biography. And so it was kind of interesting to be there chopping onions and listening to my book being discussed. So that's how um, we kind of got introduced. And I thought we got to have this guy on, not just because he's a fan of my book, but because I think that in terms of what this, our approach to this show and to golf is, it sounds like we're all in the kind of sing from the same hymn book around, you know, Really, what are we aware of when we're playing this game and, and and how it gets in our way and whatnot? So how did you come to – you've got a very rich history in terms of, as Howard said, an entrepreneur, uh, a, a Buddhist teacher. I don't know if you do Dharma talks or not, but how did, how did this game come to uh, get its claws into you? Okay, thanks. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm in my mid-60s now, and uh, I grew up in England, in the north of England. And to be honest, there, golf is a little bit of an elitist game, you know, from a working class family. And uh, it never occurred to me that I would ever play golf. Um, we used to play cricket as kids, which you probably would never understand if we had an hour to explain it. Thank you. Um, yes, no way. <laughs> then uh, I, I got involved in Buddhism in my early 20s. And so I've been meditating for a long time now. And uh, after I'd started meditating, I started my business and my family. Then I started a specialist joinery company. We, we make and restore sash windows in historic properties. So as my business was growing, I was getting less active. I wasn't crawling up and down on roofs anymore and you know carrying six by two timbers around. And um, my wife said, you know, you're really, you're 40 now. You're nearly 40. You want to, guys don't look after their health. You got to look after your health. She used to be a nurse. So, I went to see the doctor and uh, sitting with the doctor, she's testing me for all kinds of stuff and asking me all kinds of lifestyle questions. And she said, this is amazing. You know, for a small business owner, you're not stressed out. You're, 
great health, but you could lose a bit of weight. You could do some exercise. And I'm thinking, well, I hate exercise. It's boring. (laughs) And uh, so I had about a half hour drive home in the car from the doctor's appointment thing. What am I going to do? And it just came into my head like this. I know. I learned to play golf. It just came out of the blue. So how did it kind of get, it's like golf isn't something that, you know, a lot of people dabble and eh, it's okay and they go on to something else. But how did it really get its claws into you? Because it, oh, right. as Howard said, he used that obsessed word earlier. How did you start to become an obsessive golfer? I was hooked straight away. Um, I, I got a guy that used to work for me and his father-in-law because in Scotland, golf is unique. It's a people's game. You know, everybody plays and uh, so I got borrowed some clubs and got this guy that works for me, Australian guy and his Scottish father-in-law. And he took me around the golf course. I thought, this is just great. You know, I want to do this. And then um, a friend of mine and I both started playing at the same time. And we joined up at Moffat Golf Club at the end of the season. So throughout the winter, we played like every weekend because we were determined that by the start of the next season, we would be kind of fit enough to play and not get in everybody's way, you know. Um, and I was welcomed in the Moffat Golf Club. I met some great people and people were really willing to show me stuff. And, yeah, I got obsessed, <laughs> like most people do, I think. Hey, Ben, I mean, I have so many different things I'd like to start with. <clears throat> Pardon me, but do you think the fact that you were already – Somebody that uh, understood the beginner's mind, the the idea of mindfulness in general, that you were able to see golf very quickly in a way that it takes a lot of golfers, some never get it, that there's more than just the physical game being played and that the reason Tim and I came together as friends and, and did this podcast is that we we love that side of the game. Like both of us, like I, we can talk technical, <clears throat> excuse me, crap all day long. But it, when you first began playing, did did it take you long to see? Oh, there's there's something else here. You observed people and and you see them struggling, but it's not struggling physically as much as this inner turmoil that they're in. Yeah, I mean straight away, I could <clears throat> see that this was basically just like my meditation practice. You know, a matter of getting out of your own way letting things happen, and, you know, I was probably, as a starting point, more attuned to my mental process than most people would be, and I could see what was going on. I could see where the good shots and the bad shots came from. <clears throat> and that, <clears throat> excuse me. I also got fascinated by the way that, hang on, we've spent a lot of money, we've allocated time, we've organized ourselves to get on this beautiful golf course and play, and most people don't enjoy it. What's that about? Right. So I already got involved. Well, how can we make sure that we do enjoy it? And I guess the other thing is, as a sort of literature graduate, I had, I still have a love of reading, and so I was absorbing a lot of stuff from books as well. You know, like Golf in the Kingdom and Tim Galway's um, Inner Game stuff and Stephen Pressfield's The Bag of Hands book and so on. So I was obsessively following around and following threads of reading, and then I start meeting like-minded souls which happens doesn't it just out of nowhere and uh, th- th- that's how i got into it really yeah I'm, I'm interested though that when golfers start to get into this game they start there's there's kind of like a paradigm of golf of here's how you do it 
And there's, you mentioned books, and there's thousands of books on how to do it right. Hit mm. this position, rotate this, you know, knit your left eyebrow, et cetera. Did you find yourself at all getting caught in that sort of way of thinking about having to connect the dots and do this physically, this physical thing in a correct manner? Mm. I took some golf lessons, but not a lot. Um, and I did a lot of experimentation on my own. Um, and I don't think I got as obsessed about the technology as most people do. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, you were, you were lucky, I think, that you came to it in a, in a different way, from a different world of, of equanimity as a person. You know, I, I was just going to connect this. For about 15 years, so I started in my mid-40s, I've been doing yoga. I, I do yoga in the entire from November till April. Uh, that's what I do. And for the, but I had been a pretty high level golfer prior to yoga. And I remember when I first went to yoga, I'm like, I got to be a scratch yoga guy. I mean, you know, <laughs> like I got to, like I honestly, the first few years of doing it, I ha I really I was learning the poses, but I wasn't learning the purpose. <laughs> and and. Uh, I don't know, as I got older, like a lot of things, I, one day I was in class and the leader was saying, you know, something I thought it was hokey at the time. He said, it's called yoga practice, not mm. yoga perfect. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's kind of cheesy. But over the last decade of doing yoga, particularly the last couple of years, I've learned to just let it go. The idea that I'm going to be great at this because that isn't the idea of it. No, no, it's not at all. The purpose of doing yoga is not to be great at yoga. Yes, but and, and in a way, you know, it's funny because a couple weeks ago I was at a golf school, and on the second day they brought in a yoga guy to help this group get warmed up, and and uh, my girlfriend and I were like, "This is there's so many great hip openers for golf," but you could see the other people struggling with the idea that what does this have to do with you know the top of my backswing? Yes, yeah. But there's a big parallel between this and the meditation work that I teach. Yes. Because it's the same. There's this, we present it sometimes as being, there's an attitude and there's a technique. And most people, when they've learned stuff, you home in on the technique. How do I do it? I see a PowerPoint, let's read all the books, and then I've got it, and then I can start teaching somebody else. But meditation and golf are absolutely not like that. So, of course, there's a technique right to it, and of course, there's technology. It'd be stupid to say not, but the attitude, you can really make the most of what you've got, can't you? And that same attitude of not beating yourself up is so helpful. The attitude of staying present, so helpful. The attitude of not getting lost in the stories, so helpful. And it's a struggle when we teach people meditation to get them to sort of say, it's not that you're supposed to have a particular prescribed experience and you're supposed to get rid of anything that doesn't fit with that. It doesn't actually matter what happens. It's your relationship with what happens that counts. And that is such a parallel with golf. And I, you know, I started seeing that from day one. Um, and just before I get off yoga, you know, I've been taking some classes this winter that are, they're called Moto with Meditation. Moto is just the type of yoga I take. And I had a class recently, and the, and the, the instructor said something 
really lovely. He said, a lot of times we do 45 minutes of yoga and 15 minutes of meditation at the end. He said, but I want to do something differently today. I said, I want, he said, I want you guys to understand that all of this is the meditation. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 from when we start these poses, all of it is, if you look at each pose as a mini meditation. Yes. And, uh, and I was like, oh, again, it took me away from how long is this pose going to last or why am I sweating or all this stuff. Like, you know, as, as, they, you, know, as you know, they, the monkey mind. And I thought, okay, if all I'm supposed to do is be aware of my breath at every moment that I can, mm-hmm. I can make that my goal. So when I start to struggle and start thinking, you know, when is this thing going to be over? He said, just connect back to the breathing and let's make this whole hour about that. And I yeah. got to tell you, I, I, I feel uh, there's a real connection you know, Tim talks about this with his students. I talk about it with my coaches about if you can connect to your breathing during a round of golf, it brings you back to the present. Absolutely. Or the walking. You know, it's a walking meditation as well. And you can allow yourself to shift focus sometimes. It doesn't have to be, you know, you should only think about this. You know, it's just a matter of finding ways to stay present. And then I think what happens is, you know, what you described there with the yoga what the guy was suggesting really is that you learn in the awareness mode in rather than in the I'm supposed to mode. You know, so you just be aware of what's happening. That's it. And the training of meditation is we give ourselves something relatively simple to be aware of. And we practice, maybe on a cushion, maybe in a chair. But then it's not about getting perfect at it. It's getting familiar with our own patterns of how we lose it and how we find it again and what works for us and what doesn't work. So that, that's the training. It's not trying to be perfect. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I to, to my clients, when I do workshops, I, in essence, sort of in my simple way, I teach a meditation. And so many people say, I'm not a very good meditator. I say, wait a sec, that's not what it's about. It's not about stopping your thinking. It's not floating up into this ooze or something. It, the skill to me is is what am I paying attention to right now? Yeah. Where is my mind? And just that that awareness. And it's it's interesting how in life and in golf, just that little piece around what am I paying attention to? Yeah. You know, as I walk down the fairway, am I is my brain still ruminating about that three putt? Yeah. Or is my brain thinking, wow, if I can par the next three holes, I'm going to shoot seventy two today? Yeah, that's so. It. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you think our listeners, how, you know, I have my own take on awareness, but how they might be able to use this conversation as something that they can use to enhance their games, their life with awareness. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, you know, in in meditation, people would say, you know, oh, be here now, you know, be present. And and golfers would always say, oh, you know, I was was coming in, you know, I was on a good score, I was championship, whatever. You know, my uh, I just kept telling myself to be present. And that, that, that's true, you know. But what does it mean and why do we do it? I think it's really important as a meditation teacher for people to understand that. Otherwise, if you don't understand it, it's just another thing to do that some guy says you should do. It's like a golf tip. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. It's like a, a kind of a goofy swing tip that, oh, yeah, I hit a couple of shots. Well, that's it. And then, of course, you lose it. So... What's the point of staying present? And you've alluded to it there already, Tim, is that the mind naturally doesn't want to settle. In one way, we've got this deep, deep wish to come home. 
to settle, to be just in our natural state. But we're completely addicted to going into the past and trying to retell the story and hope it comes out with a different ending. (laughs) (laughs) Identifying with that story or going off into the future and dreaming up this preferred future. And in golf, it's really obvious that the game is played in the present moment. You know, the shot happens in the present moment. And it's not even quite as like that might sound. It's not like thinking about being in the present moment. It's an awareness of being in the present moment, of being with the present moment. Because sometimes um, I can be practicing or walking the golf course and I'm doing a kind of mental commentary. Oh, yeah, Vin's doing okay now. Oh, his mind's going a bit quiet now. That's not being present either. So what we do in meditation practice is we give ourselves a support. And that's the purpose of why we tune into our breathing. Because breathing is something that is happening. It's with us all the time. And it only happens in the present. So we're kind of connecting our mind and our body in the present. And that's how it works. It's, yes. it's somewhere to come back to. And it's a way to notice when you're not there and you can come back to it. Yeah, well, that's interesting because um, in the last couple of days, I was talking with a player who, I mean, this person is a plus handicap, and he just says that, you know, he's got a good score going or something, and all of a sudden he starts to be, his mind keeps going towards, you know, I could win this, or, you know, I'm going to raise the trophy or something. And I said, you know, you're not doing anything wrong. This is the way the mind works. I said, the skill is to be aware, oh, I'm thinking again about this and identifying it and then deciding, okay, where do I want to put my attention? Mm -hmm. I'll put it on, say, my feet hitting the ground, the Mm -hmm. feeling of my thighs maybe or my breathing. Mm -hmm. The skill is catching yourself when you're not where you want to be. That's it. How's that land for you? Perfect. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's the mindfulness is noticing when we're not where we have committed to be where we need to be in order to play the shot really isn't it i mean we sometimes define it as knowing what's happening when it's happening whatever it is not having a blank mind having a perfect mind having a blissful mind and i think this is where in a way we're at the the, the next phase you could say of sports psychology rather than positive thinking because that's just i'm going to visualize this i'm going to tell myself I'm a great golfer or whatever, all of those positive thoughts and affirmations are much better than negative ones, but it's still something you have to hold. Whereas the approach you're talking about and I'm talking about is we accept that the mind is fluid. That's what it does. And we're finding a way to work with it. But it is and a practice. It is something, you Some know, it, it is, um, mm. you know, we've talked a lot about different and we've talked with very different mental performance coaches on this show, and they have different techniques, all of which are designed to have players become unconsciously competent at being more present. But I want to get back to something you said about people's stories about the past. <clears throat> some of the reading I've some of the reading I've been doing this winter is a lot about. It's a lot of stuff with Dr. John Sarno is a pioneer in terms of the unconscious mind 
replacing pain in the body. But one of the things that we do when we have these stories from before, even if it's as Tim said, you missed a three footer on six and now you're carrying it with you for whole, you know, you keep having it. But what happens in the body is that that memory still produces the reaction. So not yes. not only are we chaotically going over it, but our body is feeling it. Yes, yeah, yeah. This visceral feeling, and it's one, and again, I, I bring it up as another reason to dump it and another reason to at least seek some way during a round of golf to, to let the pressure off because at whatever level we play, and as you discovered early on in your golf life, Vin, that... It, it it's as Shakespeare said, it's twas ever thus in the game, you know. The the reason Bobby Jones said there's golf and there's tournament golf is all he's saying is there's golf and then there's golf when you care, which I think for most people is more often you don't have to play in a, an open championship to care about a round of golf. Sure. I mean, it wouldn't be golf if you didn't care, right. to be honest. You know, I mean, I'm pretty relaxed about golf, but to wander around a field with a, some bags and hit a shot and not care where it goes is, is might be fun, but it's not golf. Yeah. You know, because without playing with that pressure, you're not getting the full benefit of the game. Because I think it works two ways. So I, I kind of see golf as somewhere in between what you could say the meditation cushion and real life. <laughs> it's the place where, uh, I, I, with my friend Andrew Gregg, he's a golfer, I, we have a lot of conversations about this. We see this, it's like a protected space where you can try out what would it be like. Yeah. And the really cool thing is that in golf, you're always getting feedback. And when you hit a great shot, you were there, but you were not in control. That letting go, getting out of our own way is is that where the magic happens? You know, we do stuff, the whole in the zone and in flow experience is a hyper effective rather than useless. But it takes a lot of doing to con convince ourselves to get out of our own way. So here's where I, I really relate to golf. I think, how about you gain confidence in the effectiveness of getting out of your own way on a golf course where there may be a pint of beer at stake well, I know your reputation, or but there's something at stake. There's enough to care, and you can practice even when it matters. Getting out in your own way and trust and let go, and see the results, and then that can spill over into other areas of your life where it might also be kind of cool to let go. Mm -hmm. You know, in relationships, in business, and in your way of working, your way of being, it's far more effective. But it's counterintuitive, isn't it? The harder I try, you know, is, that's going to be more effective. But we get a direct feedback that the great shots we hit, and when we get out of the way, this unconscious comp or conscious competence. Yeah. This sounds like a good place to introduce Mo Norman. And mm. one of the things that Mo talked about was playing with an alert attitude of indifference. Yeah. And what I loved about that was there's kind of two pieces. One is alert. I'm awake. Yes. You know, I'm aware, if you will. Indifference is that, you know, whatever happens, I can accept. Yeah. You know, I'm detached from the result. Um, so I altered that slightly based on a, a quote I heard from the snowboarder, Sean White. So I think this, and to me, it's easier to remember is I slightly don't care. 
<laughs> yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> so it still works, but it still works within the context yeah, yeah. of golf. Is that well, I want to have a, I want to hit the fairway. I, you know, I'd like to shoot a certain score. Yeah, but I'm, I slightly don't care about it. And Ben, before you answer, it's funny, Tim, because I, I was going to bring this up. I was with our friend uh, Marty Chuck, who's a top teacher in the States. And the way he put it, that his version of I slightly don't care is this. He says, he said to us one day, he said, listen, there's only three things that can happen. A good shot, a bad shot, or an indifferent one. And if you're okay with all three, then this makes it a lot easier. You know, yes. Like if you just like if because if you can just even a bad if you're before you hit it, you've got a sense that I'm OK no matter what this happens or what this mm-hmm. does, then you can narrow it. Uh, your sort of sense of slightly not caring extends to all three outcomes. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You honed in on the Tim honed in on that specific quote of more Normans because my wife's a meditator as well. Long time. But she's not a golfer. And I was reading just that very quote the other evening. I said, listen to this, an alert um, feeling of indifference. I said, that's what we're doing. You know, going back to that definition I shared, it's knowing what's happening, when it's happening, the alertness, whatever it is. And it's, it's just it. it. It could be a definition of golf or meditation. But for most golfers, you know, if you say to them a slight, you know, alert feeling of indifference, their mind goes to that. That's great. Nice. <laughs> that's, that's nice. nice. That's <laughs> nice, guys. Um, but what, uh, what is that? When I hit a bad shot, what should I think? Yeah, but I still want to break I 100 still, today. But, and, and the thing that draws people to golf is almost immediately if they're hooked is I think, I don't know, what Timmy, what do you think of this? I think golfers, whether you're a Vin Harris, if you're an aware human being and you get hooked on golf later in life, I think you can instantly feel the duality of the physical part and the mental part. The problem, though, is that with a lot of men, and Tim does a lot of work with this, and a lot of men don't like discussing the non-physical aspect of golf where Tim and I have spent a hundred shows saying, this is the game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well... um it is. It's difficult, and, and you can't attack the problem directly. So I'll give you an example of something we did. You know, I, I talk a bit in, in the book, and uh, I've talked with Carl about this um, program I've been running for like 20-odd years with my friends, um, which we call Fairway to Heaven. It's a golfing workshop for a week. We bring people together, almost always in Scotland. And it's a mixture of a kind of a workshop and a golf week. And... Uh, we did this exercise once where we're looking at that inner critic, for example, you know, which everybody's got inner critic, huge. So we kind of personified it. So we're sitting around in a circle and I said, mm. okay, do you have a bad caddy? You know, what's this inner bad caddy like? <laughs> yeah. So when that was the sort of safe metaphor, people were really willing to share some really wacky stuff, you know, like, you don't deserve to be on this golf course. No. <laughs> you suck. You're oh, horrible. Yes. Well, you, yeah, know, you suck. You know, you hit your best club. I don't even have a best club. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it was light, people felt really free to out it, you know? Yeah. And we were sharing this in a little circle. And then after I said, well, okay, let's sit for a moment. And if you had a good caddy, what would he or she say? And, you know, mostly it was like, I just want to know they're there and just leave me to get on with it, you know? And working with that sort of metaphor really seemed to help. 
rather than attacking it directly. Well, there's an old there's an old joke in golf, but it's basically the 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 net of it is if if anyone ever spoke to you or I or Tim yeah. the way yeah. we do sometimes yeah. on the golf course, you'd fire them. Yeah, yeah, totally. First, yeah. you'd hit them, and then you would fire them. Yeah, yeah. But I the mean, thing. We put a lot of work in on this in teaching meditation. Quite soon after the you know, basics of mindfulness, we bring in this self-compassion. You know, this could you be a friend to yourself? Would as you, as, you, as Howard's saying, you know, would you allow anyone to talk to you like that? Right. But we're also working against the the paradigm. The paradigm is here's how you do it right. You could go on YouTube and find gazillion videos on how to flat you know i guess flattening your impact thing is now the thing oh yeah that right and you know and then it's like you know i well i how do i stop slicing you know or how do i get rid of the bad shots it's always around i'm doing this i don't like it and i want it to effing stop now yeah yeah i mean people go to a golf course tell me what i'm doing wrong that's a sentence usually isn't it and that's how people approach us as meditation teachers. You know, what am I supposed to do? Oh, it was going wrong. You know, can, how can I stop having this? And the first thing to do is to actually be aware of what you're doing because more people don't make that first step. So they're expecting a golf coach to tell them what's happening. Well, what would it be like if you felt it for yourself, what was happening? Yeah, that's the shoemaker model, the anti-guru model, which is, you know, and, and Tim and I are huge shoemaker fans. We've had a chance to talk to him. And he, I remember in a conversation, he's saying, you know, like, you know, almost good, bad, or indifferent. Just notice, you know, he, he, he always says he, he learns more from a lesson. He wants to learn from the lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the student can can leave the lesson where they're where they have both discovered something mm. as opposed to you know Tim and I've spoke about the model of you know uh, this is my I'm the guru do this these are my positions and if you can't do them then you suck and that also helps build that you know that paradigm as you will of yeah. of not not what did you say not uh, measuring up yes yeah I mean I like going back. I like Fred Schumacher's thing. This is the art of the possible. Yeah. Which also relates to the indifference thing. He's saying it's not, I'm going to hit a great shot. I'm going to hit a great shot. I might hit a bad shot. It's, just, it's possible it will be good. You know, it is possible the putt's going to go in. It's possible it won't. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of all right with that and do what you can do. It's Carl yeah. Morris. In Carl Morris's putting book, he's got a great phrase. He says, You stand over a putt and you think, okay, is it possible? You ask your brain the question. Yeah. Is it possible for this putt to go in? Not, yeah. I suck at putting, I have another three-footer, all on, 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 on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and another reason from a mindfulness perspective that is it possible question is better is that the, the mind doesn't like being told what to do. Okay, sit there, breathe, don't think about anything, just stay with your breath. I would be maybe phrasing that in a guided meditation. Where, well, what would it be like for a little while just to give yourself permission to sit there? And, oh, yeah, I could try that. So we have to be really careful with the inner language that we're using with ourselves and with others if we're coaching them, you know. So, so Vin, in terms of what I'm thinking of is uh, almost like from a business standpoint, hmm, how do I get more people to understand? If they go this, they will play better golf, have more fun. And, oh, 
I'll, I'll have a better business as a coach. Yeah, <laughs> but, why not? Yeah. So it's like, how do we get through that, if you will? And I think that there's there's an emerging awareness around how you know this way of doing things doesn't necessarily work. And I think that a lot of people are seeing this through Rory, Rory McElroy's evolution. Because mm. he lived and died with his shots. I remember him talking after one of the players last year. You know, mm. what was the difference? Well, when he would shoot 74, I'm a bad person. Shoot yeah. 66, I'm a good person. And he yeah. seems to have let go of that. So what do you see in Rory? And what do you think our listeners can glean from his experience? It's the identification you're alluding to there, isn't it? That identifying with thoughts, with golf. And it's a natural tendency. And it really takes, I think, some quite deep practice. Not in a kind of Ninja Turtle kind of, you know, let's go for it, but <laughs> just as a, as a genuine commitment to ourselves. You know, you, like you talk about and you're just about walking the talk. You know, you, you're going to live with this and really work with it. Are you prepared to see what it would be like to not identify with when it goes well? Hey, that means I'm a great guy. When it goes badly or you see some, oh, that means he's a waster, you know. I think we need to let go of that, let go of that identification. But I, I think the way we, we've got a, an advantage if we're trying to help people with golf because we're related to their experience. Everybody knows that everybody's hit a great shot once or twice, you know, and they all know the common features of that is they got out of the way. They were present. They weren't particularly thinking about technique. And you could get them to make a whole list of what was it like when you hit a great shot rather than what went wrong when you hit a bad shot. A kind of positive inquiry into what it's like. Uh, Vin Harris's book is called Mindful Heroes. And, uh, you know, you were kind enough to send along a, a chapter or two. And a lot of it is, you know, ground that we've covered, ground that Tim covers, knowing why you play golf. Uh, and other things that are sort of designed to give somebody at least um, you know a little bit of you know material to start thinking about golf maybe in a different way uh, a lot of the stuff we've talked about today the i I was interested in your your seminar uh fairway to heaven that the idea i think the ne- and that is the next evolution in golf because <clears throat> as as the population ages and a lot of men and women. We've now been playing golf a very long time, and at some point you've kind of go, well, this isn't serving me <clears throat> well anymore. Yeah. And and I think more and more shows like ours, books like yours, are there for people because, as I said earlier, men in particular are not real comfortable talking about how golf makes them feel bad about themselves. Yeah. And that's a big one. Do you not agree, Timmy? Oh, 100%. Um, like like that that conversation about, I feel bad about me. Yeah, well, it's like our friend George Durrani we had on. He says, men are addicted to comfort. Yeah. They don't want to bump against their shadows and their belief systems. And and connecting, you know, it sounds dramatic, with pain. Yeah. The grief, the, the, the judgments they have about themselves, the, you know, I'm not good enough belief system. Mm-hmm. And so what do we do? You know, we tend to like focus on technique, or let's say pour some alcohol on it. That's oh, a, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. So, but that's my take on that, and that's. But when so today, I was talking to a young man, 
great young pro, but he can't get out of his own way. And he talked about some of this stuff, and I could tell he was hesitant. But once he went there and he started talking about his icky feelings, mm. he just sort of released this energy, and he just felt so much better and easier. Yeah. But it's a hard place for a lot of men to get to. What are your thoughts, Vin? I think that I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, what resonated with me when you're saying that the guy just, he actually acknowledged it and something changed already. And I, I was remembering this uh, Indian guru um, called Krishnamurti, who's <clears throat> quite famous. He had this phrase, the seeing is the doing. The seeing is the doing. That, that when you genuinely see your own mental pattern and, or your habit or the knot, it kind of starts already to unravel itself because because it's been seen means that it's not you because how could you see it if it was totally you? There is an awareness beyond what you're looking at. And on that level, it starts to unravel. It doesn't go away. It's not like that's it gone forever. But if you but don't see it, it can't unravel. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the process has started. Once you've seen it, it's like the, the trick that was sort of half hidden in the darkness has been exposed. Oh, awareness is curative. I was just going to say that. Awareness is curative. Where did, where did that come? That's definitely one of our phrases here on the show. That's cool. Yeah. Who was I'm that? Uh, well, was, Fred Sch- that that's been around for a while. No, but, but I, that's Sch- not a shoemaker thing. That's a that's definitely a Buddhist thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, whatever. You know, what, is, can, I, can I just think what the, you know the thing that, um, that Tim was saying is that what can we do about it? I think we can model it, and I think you can't fake it. So that if we're around each other and around guys or women, and we're working, the role of the teacher then becomes to be saying, look. I'm a mess as well. Mm-hmm. You know, tough goes on for me. I'm not a perfect meditation teacher. You're not a perfect golf coach. We're, we're all here to learn. And that immediately disarms the situation of everybody having to try and be perfect. And once they've got that, it kind of, there's an osmosis or a transmission happens. And I think it frees things up for people. Now, it's hard to package that, but I know it works. Oh, we've done it on this show a bunch of times. We call it our going in golf hell period. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and we've both been in it. <laughs> you know, you know, one of the things that's been a hallmark of four years of doing this is the, you know, you know what you just said about modeling behavior. And, and both Tim and I have had periods of golf hell where, you know, we've shared stories where, you know, as deep as we are into this, golf happens and sometimes it goes sideways. I call it the chaos of the game. And and the takeaway and the learning for me at least has always been, okay, you know, reacting versus responding mm-hmm. is also a, 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 a an awareness meditation for me. Yes, in, in that you know, like I used to get really angry and my game would suffer, and now I go, okay, that stung because mm-hmm. bad shots sting. Yeah, but it's it's a not allowing them to stay. Mm. And so, yes, they sting. Yes, shit happens. It's can you, how many, how many seconds are you away from, you know, tranquil equanimity? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know. it. And, yeah, I mean, I don't want to pretend that I can just walk away from a bad shot. And that was one of the things that really fascinated me at the beginning. That, yeah, I'm supposed to be a meditator. I've been doing it for quite a while. And this stuff gets to me. <laughs> yeah, you, you know? Until you met golf. Yeah, yeah, it reaches the parts that other things don't reach. <laughs> but 
it's exposing it in a, quite a safe place, you know. And I think it, that's why we can use the game to work on ourselves. Yeah. Well, well Ben it's, Harris, it's the, perfect met- it's the perfect metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, that's to me. It's and, and it's and to me in many ways you get to it. So golf is a physical, emotional, and spiritual game. Yeah. And it just, it, you know, the way I show up on the golf course, so me, I tend to be a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. I want to do it right. I want to look good. I want mm-hmm. everyone to be impressed by me. Yeah. And that shows up in other parts of my life. And mm-hmm. when I'm aware of that, and I just, oh, you're doing that thing again, Tim. Let that effing go. Then yeah. I can just kind of relax kind of more into myself. And yes. to use Howard, what he, it's, it's more respond in the way I want to show up as opposed to react in a fearful way of where, you know, I got to show people apparently how smart I am and which is basically trying to overcome how dumb I think I really am. Yeah, exactly. And so by doing that on the golf course, it spills over into the rest of our lives, doesn't it? You know, that's the same approach with different cocktails that I would, you know, have. Um, in early January, uh, our the yoga studio I go to down the street from where I'm sitting was packed. I go to about three or four classes. Like in the in the heat of the winter, it's I, I love going to hot yoga. It makes me feel good. But I was there, and there was a, a, a guy around my age, but a little bit bigger. You know, I was trying to you know the typical January. I'm going to go on a diet. Going to get in shape. And about five or six classes in, uh, as we were getting dressed one day, he's like, "Oh man, I don't know if I'm." He said something like. I don't know if I'm ever going to get any good at this. And I said, well, let me tell you something from 15 years. You're not supposed to. <laughs> it's not the point. I wish I would have known that, you know, a long time ago. Because I'll tell you what's happened to me as I've gotten older. I used to be so ego-driven, even in yoga. Because once in a while, they'll say, listen, if you're, you know, if you get tired or it's too hot or you, you want to sit out a pose, feel free to do it. Not me. Never no, did. Not, not yeah. me. But you know what, guys? This year I have. I was in a class about a, a month ago with my girlfriend, and there was a lot of young people, and it was going at a pace that didn't resonate with me that day. And I did, and I, she said to me, I've never seen you do that. I just laid yeah. down. I just stopped. Yeah. I took some breaths, and I, I said, you know, I'm comfortable here in a class of 35, fairly young, some attractive, fairly young people. I'm just okay being here on the floor. And I thought, you know, that's... That's new for me. Well, what I like about what I like about that. So, Vin, I'm gonna, I'm just going to jump in here. Is that so? As opposed to ego driven, so so I'll say toxic masculinity. Absolutely. I, you know, I need to show everybody how strong I am. I'm in control, and look at me. I am. Look at look at this this body. You may want to take me home. <laughs> um, no, no, rather, not, not even my no, girlfriend ra- looking at my body going. I want to take that home. <laughs> no, to me, what you're modeling <clears throat> when we talk about that is mature masculinity. Yeah, no, maybe. I'm okay. I'm okay with this, you know, and it's fine. So how's that land for you, Vin? Absolutely. And, I mean, as I've, I, I've resonates with me that growing up, you kind of had to be tough and strong, and you had to have it together. And you had to be in control, you know, as a business leader as well. But as I got older, I, I kind of get more okay with not being Say, look, I don't know here. I'm not sure where we're going to go with this. Or I'm struggling with this. And that's quite a big line to step over. But once you've done it a couple of times, 
you find that people actually respond to you better. So I was having to model being perfect in the hope that people would like me. And then by saying, well, actually, no, some bits of me are a bit of a mess and there's some stuff I'm not very good at. People go, oh, you're okay, you're cool. How can I help you? you know? And it, it changes. Yeah. You know, Ben, I, I, I just referenced um, a book, uh, a guy I've been reading a lot of, and a lot of books about this. Uh, a guy wrote a book called The Mind-Body Connection. Here in North America, he was legendary about curing back pain. And his name is Dr. John Sarno. And one of the things he talks about, especially with men, especially with golfers, is that the the need to be perfect and present a perfect face to the world that's the super ego when in fact we're actually all just children wanting to throw our clubs but that disconnection is where our body shows up and goes well i'll tell you what i'm going to give you some lower back pain so you don't have to really examine what's going on inside of you mm-hmm. and, and i can tell you it's resonated with me with in, in this this year so far in a lot of different ways in that sometimes i'll lean into well, I'm, you know, I've got, I've got a back problem, I can't. But in actual fact, I, I recognize now that, as he says, sometimes you need to think psych- psychologically versus physically for what's the problem. Mm-hmm. Because our bodies are smart. We'll, we'll put things in different spots so we don't really have to examine what's going on with us. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is that most of us don't actually feel it. You know, the the, the this saying of, you know, feel it before you can heal it. It's more, oh, this feels a bit weird. It's more like in a movie, some spooky moves, music going on. Or something <laughs> yeah, weird. True. I don't yeah. like this. And straight away, before we felt it, we're into trying to figure out an antidote or a recipe yeah. or a way of fixing it. And just to have enough kindness towards ourselves, say, well, let's, let's see what it feels like for a minute. And that takes mindfulness, you know, to notice it, to acknowledge that it's there to feel it and then move on from there and there's no prescribed path but that first step of actually feeling it before we move on to try and fix it because quite often we're working with the presenting symptom rather than the underlying cause isn't it yeah and that's what he says but that's the scary part for for women too but my experience with working with a lot of men is that it's the pain what they go to is I have pain in my back, so I'm going to go see a chiropractor or whatever, and they're going to do these techniques mm. on my body. Whereas the place to say also look would be, okay, where in your life are you stuck or you're having some pain? Mm-hmm. Where have you had pain in the past and what are the patterns? And Absolutely. start to take a look at that. And, and I, I've, I found when Howard talks about this, um, I, I'm really fascinated by that, that the, the, the pain the physical plane actually is a distraction. Mm-hmm. He, I'm looking he at says, really go, he, he says a lot of pain. In fact, his theory is most pain, especially structural arms, shoulders, uh, elbows, backs, are, are repressed anger. And people say, well, I'm not an angry person. Listen, we're all angry at levels sometimes we don't like to look at. Mm-hmm. Bringing it full circle to Vin Harris and the idea of mindfulness in golf, golf produces a lot of of anger that if we don't have a place to put it uh, can be toxic for us not only as players but as people and I you know I've said this a million times on the show in my 30s I was the worst I'd ever met 
worst powder, worst sulker, worst club thrower. I was a very high level player that could only occasionally play well because if something bad showed up, I would I would just lose it. And I may not be as physically strong in my fifties and sixties, but I'm. I've got a different approach to it, and it's the old thing. I, I wish I'd known then what I know now, you know? Yeah. I could have saved myself. not make things work. <laughs> I could have saved myself a lot of shafts, a lot of clubs I threw, <laughs> people I tortured. Club championships you didn't finish. Didn't finish. <laughs> Anyways, listen, Vin, uh, the book is called, uh, I have it right here. It's called Mindful Heroes. Uh, it's available where books are sold, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, have we got a minute to talk about it? Yes, please. So um, I, I wrote the book with some friends, and we, we call it a Mindful Heroes because we wanted to see mindfulness as not just a kind of short-term intervention or a, a thing that you do in a vacuum. So we related the whole kind of spiritual path, if you like, to the hero's journey, like the Joseph Campbell thing where the hero sort of says, there's something wrong here, or there's some crisis that intervenes. And the hero says, I'm, I'm going to have to try a different approach. And they go into an unfamiliar territory. And for us in as meditators or golfers, that is to go inside and to look inside. And so that's the descent into a, an unusual world. And then usually what happens is there's some kind of facing of challenges or obstacles. We have to do this. It's part of the path. And even recognizing this part of the path is important. And then at some point, there's an insight into what is actually going on here. This isn't just back pain. This is something else. This isn't just missing putts. This is something else. So we're going into this innermost cave, let's call it, where there's some kind of insight as what's the common denominator in all this. And the common denominator in all my problems is that I was there, you know, being me. There's some insight into that. And then the hero returns with something of value to share with the world. And that's what we all do. Nobody yet has sort of said, I've just had this great insight, you know, that um, I wish I'd had it years ago, but there's no way I'm going to tell somebody else. We want to share it with people, like the heroes in the, the myths and stories and fables. So we set out that paradigm of looking at mindfulness. And then we had about 16 postgraduate um uh, researchers in mindfulness tell rewrite their research because research is normally boring so we had them re rewrite their research as their own hero's journey and so a bunch of men and women wrote this rewrote their stories within this format of the challenges they'd faced how they overcame them through or dealt with them through meditation and the results and so sport was one of the six sections in the book the other ones were business and education, healthcare, society, creativity. And people wrote some great stories, you know, of how they made a difference in their own life and came back to share it. So that's why it's stories of journeys that change lives. Yeah, and it really resonated for me because particularly in the in the men's work uh, that I do in, in facilitating men as part of the Mankind Project is that you, you, you want to make change in your life, you feel stuck, the, the hero's journey works because you recognize something's not working. Mm. But that's the choice point. That's that's the place where it's like, okay, do I keep going or do I take the blue pill or whatever it is? And yeah. it's a descent. Yes. It's not going to be fun. Mm -hmm. 
and that going through the ordeal, facing the pain, the shadow, that they break through and it's like, holy crap, I didn't die. (laughs) And that's where they start to see the possibilities and how capable they really are. And what's interesting, just to to wrap up, is that you've done that in your life. As an entrepreneur, things weren't going well, so you started to look into different things. And then now through this book, you went through your ordeal You've had the learning, and now you're celebrating and sharing it through your book. So that's it's very cool to see that you've lived this yourself. Um, yeah, it's, I, go, I'm sorry, Van. I just wanted to mention the book again. The full title is Mindful Heroes, Stories of Journeys That Changed Lives, um, edited by Terry Barrett, Van Harris, and Graham Nixon. And as I say, I'm certain it's available. If you want to download it immediately, you can go to your Kindle or Amazon or even a bookstore. What, what I'm going to offer is um, that, I, I mean, I'm sure most of your people are going to be mostly interested in the golf chapter. So what I would be very happy to offer is if somebody sends me an email, I'll send them a PDF of the golf chapter. Nice. It has a full table of contents and the ethos of the whole book and how to buy it, but they get to read the golf chapter. Amazing. Um, if you want, So if you're listening, and we'll put this up. Uh, in the description of today's show, uh, what is the email that someone could send you? It's Vin Harris, V-I-N-H-A-R-R-I-S, dot H-K-T at gmail.com. I'll right. email that to you just to make sure. Yeah, yeah, make sure. Was, both of us are like, did he say H? What yeah, did he say? Um, two nations separated by a common language. That's right. So, and so speak- let me try this. So Vin Harris, all one word, H yes. is in Harry, K is in Kite, T is in Tom, at gmail.com. Yeah, there's a dot between Vin Harris and HKT. Okay. <laughs> All right. And 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 Vin, we before we let you go, um, we're uh, we're recording this show on uh, Friday, March thirteenth, and uh, I can't let you go without having a, a brief uh, discussion. First of all, where exactly in the world are you today? Where do you live? Sure. Oh, where do I live? Oh, sorry. I live in Scotland. Okay. Southwest Scotland, yeah. I'm sorry, where in Scotland? Southwest of Scotland. Okay. Actually, very near Lockerbie. Okay, so you're in Scotland, we're in Toronto, Tim's in uh, Guelph, just outside of Toronto. How are things in the town that you are? How uh, how have things changed in the last couple of weeks since the uh, virus? It seems to have taken a long time to get here. I, I don't think there are any cases within our um locality um we're pretty isolated rurally so it hasn't reached yet and i don't know who knows what's going to happen eh? it's it, it shows how we are all interconnected doesn't it yeah and and it also shows you know here in north america there's already been you know people stocking up on toilet paper And and it's funny because I was having this discussion earlier. I read an interesting article, the psychology behind this sort of panic buying and and panic in general. But part of it is people are getting toilet paper and bottled water uh, to make them feel somewhat in control of something. And that's what Mm -hmm. it is. We it's the it on a massive scale. We're going to get to see just how how people, human beings hate change. And that's yes. what it is. This is an abrupt change. And that's why the Americans, I'm not blaming them, but it took a long time for people to get their heads around it, mainly because every day you wake up thinking, well, maybe it'll go away. 
Mm-hmm. And also it's a matter of reframing it. I was Skype, having a Skype call with my friend Terry Barrett, the co-editor. She's an assistant professor in Dublin University. And they've closed the university as of yesterday evening. Yeah. And But she's still connecting with friends and, you know, connecting with family. And I said, well, basically, Terry, you're doing a retreat. And she goes, yeah, you know, I've got a, a way to look. How can I live differently? And how can I still serve other people and help my students? And live in a sort of semi-retreat for a while. Frame it differently. Take it as an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know what all these sports fans are going to do. There's, maybe they have to work from home or they're supposed to retreat and – there's nothing to watch on TV. The, no, the NBA's closed, NHL, and even the Players' Championship. Um, I think they were going to just say fan, uh, players only, no fans. I woke yeah. up this morning to news the entire event is canceled and the next three PGA Tour events canceled. And maybe the Masters. And maybe the Masters. Yeah. You know, they, they made that decision late last night. And even, you know, watching it yesterday, <clears throat> and they were talking about, you know, the next three days without fans. Somewhere in the broadcast, I kind of thought, you know, I don't know that this is the right tone, that it sends the right message when the rest of the country, cities are being quarantined. I was mentioning, Tim, my daughter lives in New York, and uh, she sent me a note last night saying, uh, this stuff's getting real. And I said, what do you mean, honey? She said, well, they're going to start closing down the city. And I said, well, that's actually a good thing. You know, yeah. they frame it this way. This is a good thing. If we do this now, then there'll be less pain later. But uh, yeah, it's gonna. It's it's. You know, uh, three of us are of an age where we've lived through other things. But even at our stage, we've not lived through this. No, it's pretty unique, isn't it? It's un- untangible. I read yep. a really nice thing on on the BBC. Some, some guy was saying, "Well, rather than thinking, I don't want to get it." Behave as if you've got it and you don't want to give it to someone else. Right. Yeah. That's kind of nice way to frame it. Well, listen, Ben Harris. Mindful. What's that, sir? <laughs> that's mindful. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're, listen, uh, you know, I, I, I almost hesitated <clears throat> to go into my yoga class yesterday because I thought, you know, it's hot yoga, sweaty bodies. Is this the best place for me to be? When I'm like, well, I'll stay, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm not six feet away from the next person, but a few feet away. And I, you know, try to take precautions and they've sent out notices. But I thought, you know, if there was ever a time for me to meditate and move for 45 minutes to an hour, it's today. And I'm going to keep that schedule. Yeah. Timmy, thanks. Well, sure, we're going to say goodbye to Vin. Then we're going to wrap things up for our, our audience. Vin, thank you very much. Thank you very much, guys. I mean, it's, it's nice to meet uh, brothers in golf, you know, <laughs> brothers on the inner journey from different countries and uh, it's, it's been really nice to connect with you thanks very much yeah, really well, thank you it. sir uh, and all the best and this hopefully won't be the last time we have you on no no I hope not alright okay. take care thanks bye bye well there you go that's Van he's just he's about to click off goodbye on the zoom meeting we can see him doing that there we go uh, well that was great he's great that was great yeah, that was cool. Well, it's really interesting to to talk with someone who's got, you know, this guy's like a, a he's a Buddhist. He teaches meditation, and to see how these skills and awarenesses transfer into golf and to other parts of your life. So, um, and so interesting how it starts with a general awareness of like, you know, what am I paying attention to right mm-hmm. now? And, 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 and that's not a skill that we generally have in what I'll say kind of in that Western 
world where most of us are, are heroes, if you will, in culture are, oh, he's so bloody smart or she does this and it's all this thinking and executing the plan and and my experience is that only takes you so far. Um, I'd encourage everyone to uh, take advantage of his offer of the free PDF of the chapter on golf. I, I, I looked at it this morning. I read some of it. You know, it's it's all the stuff we've talked about in more. And I think what it will do for you, and I, as it's done for me, and I'm sure Timmy, is it's going to make you want to read the rest of the book. But there's lots. What I like about the way he set the book up is in between the stories, he has little sort of exercises, pause and reflect, uh, the beginner's mind, just different yeah. things. And, and I think it'll be a worthwhile read for our, you know, our golf nerd buddies. Uh, I just wanted to finish up talking a little bit about, you know, this, this current thing that's going on, the coronavirus, the people are starting, you know, in two days, two days ago, I was doing the radio show. No one had ever heard the phrase flattening the curve. Now it's like, you know, the, the terminology, the verbiage of this, and it's all happening very, very fast. And I had a, an interesting discussion with a, a friend of mine who you, you know, I won't tell you who he is on the show, but. He was like, oh, this is just a thing from the government and the media is overblowing it and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I sent him a couple articles from some smart people that I know. And I just said, listen, you know, you might be right. You might it might be this. This is being overblown. But I said on the chance that you're not, <laughs> you know, it's like climate change. I always say to climate change deniers, yeah, you could be right. But if you're not, we're fucked. So exactly. let's on the off chance that and it's not an off chance, in my opinion, I, I just think that, as we just said to Vin, these are unusual circumstances and people are reacting when they might need to respond a little more. But I, I think that it's not too early to take, you know, to be safe. You know, you were supposed to come into the studio today and I said, you know what? Yeah. You know, it's not necessary. We have this capacity on our computers. You know, and it's not just because I didn't want to see you, but I might I might affect you. Mm -hmm. I could have it now. The thing about the virus is, you know, you don't know if you have it, and I don't want to spread it to you and your family and me and my family, and for a while that's going to be the new normal. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so 3 4 days ago or even longer, um I started so Sandy's talking about stuff like, you know, you know, we need to go do a shop and have all this stuff. And and I could just feel my body tensing and I was resisting. I went, oh, really? You know, it's not that big a deal. This will all blow over, you know, and even like my brother, Sean, who lives in Vancouver, was thinking, you know, he's rethinking coming to visit my mom, who's 87. He lives in Vancouver. And. You know, I was going, oh, you got to live your life and all this. And, and what I became aware of in it was that my, it was bumping up against my resistance. Yeah. Because I would have to change my life. I didn't want my mother to feel bad. Yeah. But if Sean wasn't coming, I didn't want to have to, oh, really? I got to go buy, you know, eight cans of tomatoes and all this stuff. And, you know, I don't want to spend the money. And, oh, really? And, 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 and that's what, for me, that resistance was about, was that, oh, I have to change? I don't want to change. And isn't it what I said a couple minutes ago? That everyone's overwhelming reaction is, I hate change. 100%. And, you know, I was going to go, Rachel, 
my love, was supposed to go to see her brother who lives in uh, Copenhagen on Monday. And a couple days ago, she decided not to go because in talking to her brother, the things she wanted to do there, the museums, the restaurants, you know, things are restricted. There's restricted movement. And not only that, but, you know, not to be stuck in Copenhagen should you get quarantined. Exactly. I, I was supposed to go to Myrtle Beach in the third week of April. I was talking about it with a couple of our, you know, swing thought friends. And I've sort of said arbitrarily, you know, after what I've gone through at a U.S. hospital recently, and I, and I feel fine. It's not because of my illness. I feel great. But it was the idea of being stuck in North Carolina or South Carolina and not being able to get back. Mm-hmm. And those are real things that are happening, you know, and I want to get into the politics of it and the fact that the U.S. acted way too late, but here we are now, and what you just described is is what everyone is going through. Uh, Do I have to, now I have to do something? Now my my investments are screwed. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's a very common thing, and that conversation I had with that person this morning, it was they would rather argue that it's overblown from the media and the powers that be than to have to go and make some take some action. Yep. Well, you know, <clears throat> we're not too political, but <laughs> on our show, but you just look at at what Trump did in terms of let's we'll ban foreigners. The bad foreigners were the cause of all the problems. We'll ban them from flying in from Europe. And that's like, because we don't want to change. I don't want to upset my business buddies. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that I'm going to cause a, a pro- so, so resistance to change well, is right there. And, and, and we're going to have to do stuff differently. And, you know, the United States, it's a, it's data. It's not judgment. The data, the United States is way behind in testing. There's been more testing done in BC than the entire United States. Well, back to Trump, though. You know, one thing he did do that people thought was a political thing, but in actual fact, I mean, he's an income poop uh, at the highest uh, order. But when he banned all travel from China a month and a half ago, people were like, "Oh, it's a what is he racist?" But in actu- well, whatever it was, it was actually one of the great moves that the United States made. The problem with him is he goes on and has this 11 minute talk a couple nights ago, gets half the shit wrong, talks yep. about <clears throat> uh, a travel ban from Europe that may include goods and services. And afterwards, they're all walking it back. No, wait, we're, we're still going to have goods. And- because that's what's his problem is that he can't ever get it right. You can just, and I will say this, the weirdest thing I've seen this week is watching an, a press conference where Mike Pence was the sort yeah. of most calming influence because he came across as just a guy in government with the facts, as opposed to Trump going, it's, we got a beautiful plan, it's the best plan, we're the greatest country. He says, shut up. You're exactly. not a country anymore. We're all in the same, we're all on, here's the thing I will say, we're all in the same country now. Just yeah, we're well all said. in the same country. Well and uh, I've been saying, you know, I usually send um, when I send an email to somebody, I've been, you know, because I'm old fashioned. I think there's supposed to be a salutation and whatever. And I always end it with best comma Howard. But I have started the last couple of weeks with stay healthy. Yeah, because that is, I think, our best defense against all of this. And my final thought to you is we're old enough to know. 
that it's going to take a while, but at some point, everything will be fine. It will. It yeah, just will. It's just going to not be fine for some time. Yeah. And we, so we don't like change, but we're resilient as as a as a human race, as individuals. You think of the shit we've been through. Oh, Goodness, yeah. you know, just even last century, you know, two world wars, um, totally. swine flu, yeah, swine oh, yeah. flu. Um, you had the Spanish flu at the beginning that killed what thirty to fifty million. Oh yeah, yeah, we got, yeah, we got a- through that after World War One, which killed another ton of millions of people. Yeah, and we got through. <laughs> we got through two thousand and eight meltdown. Everybody uh, who had, re- you know, investments around their retirement, well, they crept back. You know, this whole thing, I'm laughing to me because this whole thing about, you know, okay, boomers, listen, boomers, like boomers, compared to our parents' generation, we're a bunch of suck pussies as well. Because I'll tell you, my my favorite thing recently, every time I watch a World War II thing or a thing about the flu, all I hear in my head is a bunch of millennials, myself included, a bunch of boomers going, fuck that shit. You know, hey, we're going to send you (laughs) off to war. No, you're not. I'm yeah, not exactly. going over. You, really? Oh, and most of you will die. Fuck that shit. I'm not doing it. In, in fact, most of the last century, if it happened to us people now, that's what we'd say. I'm not doing that. Well, exactly. Think of like think of like so. My dad's brother flew planes over Europe. You know, like what have I had to deal with? You know, I, I, I could get, <laughs> no, I could, I, I could have a library book that's overdue. Oh and, yeah. Oh, I got to pay him twenty cents. You know, my mother. Growing up, had to deal with the the um, the threat that she might get a thing called polio. Yeah, my dad was in World War II, went to France. You know, like he told me stories of coming here to Toronto and marching uh, the exhibition grounds because that's where they had this place called Manning Depot, and they that's where they went before they went off to you know mostly get killed. And I'd be thinking, like my generation, we won't wait in line for a fucking Starbucks without getting upset. Exactly. You, you know, that's it's like. Oh, you mean I can't play golf on Saturday? Yeah, look, oh, look, I- look at the reaction that people are having to like uh, you. What the NBA's closed? Shut up! You know, I've been watching this series. It's called uh, Babylon Berlin, and it's all about Berlin in the 1920s. Ooh. And it's uh, it's really well shot, and you know, subtitles, whatever. But uh, it's life at the ter- it's life early in last century. There's there's cars, but there's still people on horses. There's everyone. The the poor people look like, you know what I mean? We just wouldn't put up with any of that. And yet people not very long ago did. And a hundred years from now, people will look back on this period and go, yeah, yeah, that was a lot of stuff those people went through. So here we are, you know, living in history, but we just don't seem as we both have said in the last 15 minutes, you know, the day the planes hit that tower. Right. And and I'll tell you why I, I was saying on the show earlier this week, it's like that. But then I took, I, I took time and thought about it. It is because it was a worldwide event that we were all freaked out about for a few days. But what that didn't do is put us in harm's way in other places the way this is. Right. Yeah, the thing that's threatening the United States is threatening Guelph, Ontario, that's as right. much as uh, Queensway and Islington. And I can tell you as a dad, hearing my daughter say, yeah, everything's great, but there was a 15-minute lineup to get food yesterday at, at her grocery store in Brooklyn. You know, 
Like, I don't know. And then seeing Bill uh, de Blasi, before we started recording, I saw something from last night where they're declaring a state of emergency in New York City. And I'm like, well, you know, I will worry about her until this is over. But she's 25. She's likely to get the virus and not have anything. It's, you know, uh, unfortunately, you and I are at a much higher risk than our children. Oh, yeah. We're both uh, both over 60. And that's and that's what happens. Well, oh, not to sort of. Well, uh, our Corey's in Australia. Yeah, and he was supposed to staff a, a mankind project weekend, so they all go there, and then they cancel the weekend. And so, anyway, I'm glad that he's with some pretty cool men to hang with for a couple of days. But the point is, the key point is that we don't know if Corey's going to be able to get home. Yeah, he's supposed to work this summer as a, a crew boss, tree planting. Well, what if he has to stay in Australia? And will he be able to find a job? Does it? Does he need a visa? You know, all that stuff. And but there's a certain point in which I talked with Sandy. But you know what? And I think it's, it's obviously the same with your daughters. They're smart young people. They they're grounded. They're resourceful. They're resilient. They will be fine. We'll yeah. all be fine through this. And you know, I'm not a you know on a sort of a. You know, guys our age level, you know, a lot of guys listening, you know, are be like, well, what about my portfolio? What about my retirement? And what about all those things? You know, well, in the short term, uh, I would just suggest stop looking at it. And I would also suggest, you know, people get very emotional about stock markets plunging. But the stock market plunging isn't the same as your portfolio plunging. It is not tied to it uh, for the most part. And um, in the end, when this finally, and, you know, it could last a long time, uh, I would just say that we should, you know, try and be a calming influence for each other and that we should take care of one another. Your mother is, you know, in her 80s and. You know, my girlfriend's parents are in their 80s and my ex-wife's mother is in her 80s. And I told my daughters yesterday, I said, you know, don't worry about mommy and daddy. We're both very healthy and and you guys aren't at risk, really. But it's your grandmother you want to be aware of. How is she doing? What steps can be take, taken to make sure she has food and she has what she needs? Because, you know, those most vulnerable in our society happen to be older people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think things like this are a reminder of, you know, this could sound very sappy, but I'll go there anyways. This is a reminder of what's really important. Yeah. What's really important is your, is to me, uh, the people in my family, my close friends, you know, this would probably be a good time to connect with some people and not just send them a text, but, but use the phone part of your phone. What? (laughs) And and actually talk to somebody, you know, I know that's, I I know for some people that's a radical concept. Oh, I know. but, But, Talking creates more connection. That's right. And whatever degree of anxiety I have going, I, like yesterday morning, I, 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 you know, I got up and I'm reading. Oh my God, NBA closed down. The NHL is probably going to close down. All the kids are getting sent home. I just had this feeling of nervousness and queasiness. That's just like, oh, something's coming. It was like kind of a movie with a dun 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 music. And then Sandy came downstairs and we just started talking. And, you know, we talked about Corey a little bit, my mom and different things. And then it was just in talking, I felt better mm-hmm. just by letting it go. And so, you know, I wrote a blog about it. It is about, hey, folks, 
let's take the time to connect and talk and listen. And, you know, there, there's, there's always some good stuff in an odd way when we're in crisis, you know, you know, when you're in a funeral, sometimes when you have like amazing laughs in situations like this, you can sort of see some different things that we don't maybe normally look at, or they don't come to the surface as, as much as all the other things that can distract us. No, for sure. And I, I like the idea of, you know, like you can read a lot of stuff online that's very, very scary. And, and I think that, you know, I don't think that we should be, you know, leaning into being scared, but I think this we should be aware and we should be at least scared into some action of some kind. You know, like I I sort of woke up with a cold or I went to bed feeling a little bit coldy and I was sneezing and, you know, I'm a bit of a, not, you know, I'm, I've just got a, a cold basically. And I said to my buddy, I go, what a bad time to get a cold because... You know, like I, I don't want, I mean, the chances of somebody, you or I, we're, we're likely to get some of this virus. Yeah. And if you sneeze in a line, you're going to get a dirty look. <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm, then I looked at, you know, of course I go Google the symptoms and, you know, right. funnily enough, runny nose and sneezing is not a sign of the coronavirus. So just having that conversation with my friend, you know, may put me at ease. Well, that's the importance of, uh, you know, I was thinking, I was talking with Sandy about this, is that here we are in this age of social media. Whatever happens is, boom, it's out there. And, and that includes a lot of misinformation. Yes. And it's really important for people to, to access information from people who know what the fuck they're talking about. You know, I was thinking that a pretty good job to go into would be a would be a, um, a uh, infectious diseases expert. You got a lot of jobs there now. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> what yeah. I'm saying is that don't listen to pundits, don't listen to columnists, or anything. get good information and use that. Um, that's the danger in social media is that all these rumors and misinformation, and that it just pisses me off royally. Uh, the Fox News people. And in, in, in the in the so many people in the alt right saying that this whole thing is a democratic hoax. No, to, no, no. I mean, and yeah. and like, for God's yeah, sake, you know that they're going to say that those people are going to say that right up to and including when all of them get the virus. You know, like <laughs> honestly, that little universe and it's it's a lot smaller than we give it credit for. So what you know the what are they the, the squeaky wheel gets the noisy whatever. Yeah, squeaky wheel. Yeah, but. Uh, you know, I've I've got a couple of friends of mine that I trust that are fairly smart, you know, non-inflammatory people, and they've sent me a couple of things, and some listeners have sent us some stuff, and some of it's pretty shocking, and I've sort of mitigated who I send it to. I didn't want to send it to my kids, but uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, we just did an extra 20, then, and uh, what we'll do is we've got another special little segment. Maybe we'll tack it on to another show uh, in the future. Um, have a great day, sir. Uh, Tim yeah. O'Connor, Tim uh, O'Connor Golf, get a sign up for the blog and all that. And uh, let me play in the music now. Why is that music? And, and take care and be well, Howard yes, you and too. our listeners. Stay healthy, everybody. Exactly. Thanks you. Thanks you, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Sound of the river, you stop and you hold everything.